Hi, uh, Dr. Azizi, this is David. That's me. How are you doing? It's great to speak to you. Yeah, great to speak to you too. Uh, how are you doing today? Thank you very much. Not bad. Uh, you know, there are a lot of tough days uh, these days, but uh, yeah, other than that, I'm You're, all right. You, um, how are you? Um, good, all things considered. I imagine we're both referencing some of the same things when we <laughs> when we make those. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Uh, well, you work on political violence, so... I'm sorry. I guess you're used to. I said you work on political violence, so I guess you're used to it. <laughs> I write about political extremism. It's um, it's uh, I try to find ways sometimes to lighten the subject if I can. Uh, occasionally, with a post, uh, it can be heavy stuff. Yeah, it uh, <laughs> it can be it can be very dark indeed, and and that's even without any. Um, you know, um, prodding by uh, current events right now with what's happening in Israel, for instance. I mean, I, yeah, I, I keep going through these cycles of like, um, I can't look at any more of it uh, versus I'm just doom scrolling and consuming endless amounts of it, uh, sort of in a, f uh, a frantic desire to kind of understand what's happening in real time and then and then i go back to the first one and i'm like i can't i can't look at this anymore i i i can't uh digest anymore the imagery um yeah same i mean uh, i mean i haven't looked at some of this stuff but uh you know because there's hamas telegram channels that publish some of the stuff you know but i for verification reasons i needed to look at a couple of things because you know i because of interviews i given and you know yeah it's terrible the urge to the stop domus domus calling is also hard yeah. And um, yeah, exactly. Well, let's jump into it. Um, uh, sure. Please uh, introduce yourself briefly. So, um, my name is Arash Azizi. Um, I uh, teach history and political science at Princeton University. And uh, I, um, what do you want to know? <laughs> Take it from there. Uh, your area, your, what is your main area of expertise? My uh, main area of expertise, I would say, is our uh, social movements um, in the 20th century, broadly speaking, um, but a global history of um, ideas and dissent, if you will, um, but particularly in the Middle East. My dissertation, for instance, focused on um, the communist parties in Iran and the Arab world and how they interacted with each other um, during the Cold War. Um, and I have a new book coming uh, out in January called What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom, which is about the revolutionary movement we witnessed in Iran um, last year. Uh, so, you know, I wish it's a social movement, so it fits into my broader work. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's get into that. But before we get into that, um, talk to me uh, as if I've never heard of the country Iran before and I don't know anything about it, uh, you know, uh, what it, what is the culture? Who are the people? And maybe some of the background that will that will sort of like back us into the subject of your book. Um, well, uh, <laughs> that's a that's a really broad question. But um, well, Iran, um, you know, Iran. So I can talk about my own country. I'm always, and Iranians usually, me included, and uh, love their country, and and the results love talking about it. Um, but Iran is a, I guess most Iranians would have thought this thing that is an heir to ancient, to an ancient civilization, the Persian Empire and, and, and the, the, the grand Iranian states that have existed for, uh, for hundreds of years. Um, so it's one of the few states with, with that kind of 
historical lineage, but also in the world uh, today, since 1979, uh, 1980 more particularly, uh, Iran is a country ruled by an unrepresentative regime, the Islamic Republic, that is very particularly repressive and particularly and does a lot of evil both to the people of Iran itself and to uh, people of the region and the world. It supports of um, various terror groups in the Middle East um, and its arming of them. Um, it's just one aspect of that. Um, and the book, the new book, is about the struggles of Iranians in various fields of life to stand up to this regime. You know, whether it's a woman fighting for better rights for themselves, whether it's an environmentalist uh, fighting against the regime's corruption, um, whether it's those who want to seek a different foreign policy um, for Iran. Um, so really, I would say um, most Iranians, when they think of their country, they look at this duality, a, a you know, as I said, a proud and history uh, and a lot of achievement of our society, of Iranian art, cinema, um, um, so, you know, society, as I said, broadly speaking, versus this unrepresentative regime that's, hmm. that's really encumbered us for four decades. Right. Iran was sort of known as being one of the most liberal countries in the entire region until until things kind of reversed themselves, right? Well, and this continues to be the fact in, um, if you're talking about, you know, I would say socially liberal attitudes or things like that, this continues to be the fact, that, like, the paradox of Iranian society, if you will, that Iran has certainly the most religiously repressive regime in the world, possible competition with Taliban in Afghanistan, but I don't count that because it's an undercooked regime. Um, but at the same time, its peoples are, you know, you say in the region, but not, not even just the region. I mean, the Iranians are, um, have had many societal achievements, um, as I said, that are uh, that definitely, certainly uh, socially liberal and, and pro- progressive uh, by any standards, um, and but yet they found themselves unencumbered by this regime. Mm-hmm. And then, and then now, currently, with these ongoing protests, uh, which were which were sparked or galvanized by the killing of Masha Amini for not wearing her hijab properly, uh, the government has just been cracking down, and this puts us in a in a in a situation where the question "What do Iranians want?" becomes uh, a vital question to answer, I think. And so, um, you mentioned uh, communist uh, st- strains. Maybe some other movements are in there. Uh, talk about what do Iranians want? Um, well, to, the communist parties were was about my dissertation. You know, was about the. It ends in the 1980s, and uh, you know, so that's that's when that was relevant, and it's not so much now. It's no you longer know, it's no longer today. so much a, a a thing these days. Not really. I would say Iran, and you know, I am a socialist myself, and I certainly support left wing movements. I would say right now, um, you know, left wing movements in Iran are. I mean, they exist, and and they definitely have a role in different levels of society, but they don't have the kind of hegemonic presence they they did in the during the Cold War. Um, um, but I would say also, as an Iranian and socialist, my priority, of course, is democratization of Iran first. So really, at this stage, um, of course, the prioritizing of workers' rights, fighting for better living conditions of people, these are very important. And unfortunately, not everyone in the 
Iranian opposition shares these goals uh, to the same degree. But the priority, nevertheless, the political priority of the Iranian democratic left is that certainly democratization of our country, getting rid of the regime, and that's the goal we share with you know with with a wide um, with a broad front, if you will, of pro-democracy forces. Um, that's what Iranians want. Um, you know, the book really, what I try to do in the book is that I, I go to look at different aspects, the, you know, different aspects of our civil society, as I mentioned, you know, the women's movement, the environmental movement, um, the trade unions, um, the those who are the critics of policy and want a more peaceful foreign policy, um, and, and many other, uh, and many other elements. So, because we all, we all know so much about how terrible the regime is, my intention here was to go beyond just talking about how terrible the regime is, but add a more positive image, if you will, of, of what are the things that Iranians stand for. And what are these? Um, the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom, although it was borrowed from a Kurdish leftist context in Syria and Turkey, um, nevertheless, I think captures uh, pretty well some of the things that Iranians have been struggling for, i.e. equality for women, ending their woman subjugation under the Islamic Republic, um, uh, freedom, i.e. ends to dictatorship and um, bringing up democracy, respect of rights, and life, which I think is perhaps the most important or very important element of it, is that Iranians want to, um, you know, are revolting against these restrictions that the Islamic Republic has imposed on their daily lives. Restrictions, that means they are not allowed to think what they say, they're not allowed to publish what they say, but they're also not allowed to think what they want, what they want. Um, they really are simply deprived from a normal life, from, and which is why one of the slogans coming out of the movement in Iran for a normal life. Um, and I think that's very important. So, that's the, the slogan um, is to, for a normal life. Sorry, the, the, the slogan coming out of the current protest is for a normal life. That's right. Yes, for a normal life. Uh, it's kind of a striking slogan because, you know, um, it might appear to be sort of, it's almost saying we want a boring life. Um, what a normal life, but it's you know if if you see how the most basic elements of a normal life are denied to Iran, it becomes clearer um, why they would have such a stomach. Well, when you live under brutal oppression, I think a kind of boredom is a is almost a beautiful luxury. Yes, certainly. Um, you know, my mom lives in a small town in Canada, and I always sort of make this uh, joke with her that you know the reason she likes it is precisely because it's boring because she has spent decades in mm. very turbulent times um mm. you know living through the revolution and it's um it's repressive aftermath and yeah so boredom becomes a luxury mm. are there any of uh, voices in iran who you talk about how uh, nobody can speak and express but are there are there voices that are speaking out that are that are standing for uh, women's equality or freedom or life, as you mentioned, that that um, people could uh, look up and and maybe read about, or is it really a universal silence? Just um, no. Well, so uh, you know, of course, there. I mean, the, I wrote the book because there are tons of figures uh, in Iran. I mean, this, this, my book is largely about people in Iran. Many of them in Iranian prisons. Who, uh, who stand for this thing. But, you know, a great example that unfortunately should be much more in the news if it wasn't for the term, um, events in Israel-Palestine in the last few days is Nagis Mohammadi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize just last week, right before this terrible, you know, terrorist attacks sort of occupied the news. Nagis Mohammadi, she is a 
human rights activist, spent all her life fighting for justice, um, for women's rights, for prisoners' rights. You know, one of her first big campaigns was against capital punishment, opposing the death penalty in Iran. Um, and really, it's this tremendous figure uh, who I also mentioned in the book. I, in fact, um, you know, uh, translated some of her speeches, and I mentioned her a few times in the book. She occupies a few pages in the book, and she also has her own book, um, White Torture, that came out just uh, last year, about a year ago. Um, it's a beautiful, tremendous book. Uh, I, I recommend it. Um, and yeah, now I just uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's the hope of Iranian progressives that um, this can put a spotlight on our country um, and on the uh, brave figures like Nargis who are fighting to change it. Mm. Um, so then let's let's talk a little bit about that hope because uh, I mean, with such power being wielded by the government, what? What hope uh, do you think that there is, and what avenues would you know would the successful take to, you know to eventually achieve some kind of change? In other words, can, can it be done? Can it really be done in our lifetime? And how is it going to be done? By what avenues do you believe? Um, what has evaded Iranians, unfortunately, for a very long time, is a political alternative. Iranians have failed to build a serious, durable political opposition who can pose an alternative to the regime and replace the rule of Khamenei and his gang. Um, this is an important failure um, that we need to acknowledge. Um, this failure has been uh, has partially happened because of a weakness. Can you hear me? I, I think I thought you went. Uh, I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, this, this failure is partially due to what I would call an ideological weakness. And that is by which I mean, unfortunately, for a very long time, some people have uh, come to live with this terrible illusion that it is possible to change things uh, without, uh, a, without political parties, without political organizations, without political organizations. Some thought that, oh, you can just have movements on the street. You can have people show up. Um, you don't need leadership. You don't need... Uh, this, you know, you don't need a headquarters. People, uh, pro, um, you know, promoted these really pernicious uh, ideas, such as um, horizontalism and leaderless movements and, and, and such, which have never walked anywhere, which have never led to any, uh, you know, good change anywhere. And these same pernicious attitudes is what doomed the Arab Spring in Egypt and in many other countries. In fact, Vincent Bevins has a new book uh, called If We Burn, Mass, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution, um, which I believe, and I'm just reading it now, is a fascinating book, I think a very timely book, um, going through many countries that he, he has done interviews in doing 12 countries, including Hong Kong, uh, um, Chile, uh, various countries. Um, he ends in 2020. Uh, I believe he even looks at the sort of Black Lives Matter movement in the US. It basically shows that with the lack of political organization and political leadership, you cannot change. Has been the main problem, if you will, in Iran. The main thing that has been missing. Otherwise, the Iranians have sacrificed a lot. They've they've tried different paths. They have tried paths of electing elements of the regime who might be more amenable to democratization. A few times, and not even democratization. At some points, they've elected um, 
people who elements of the regime itself who would be um you know more pro-western in the foreign policy thinking that this might um have uh, um sort of salutary effects on their domestic policies um and they've also come out and uh, and got killed on huge numbers hundreds of iranians have, have been killed since in last five years in repeated uprisings the last of which was the woman black freedom movement that started last year um and then went on for some months but that movement had met the failure that the previous movements had which was as i said the lack of a credible serious political alternative which continues to not even anything that evades Iranians have if we are able to build such an alternative which could include um, many figures inside and outside Iran and um, if they're able to put together the opposition case they're able to put together their differences and come together and also politically organize their Iranians abroad for example um, you know they could have a role in trying to make some sort of a headquarters um, abroad but also by give, showing support to figures inside Iran who are capable of of organizing our compatriots inside, you know, that, that could be what brings us change. But since that scenario is evading us, as I said, and doesn't look like a likely alternative, uh, the way history works, you know, as in history is the best, or, um, you know, um, the, the path that is sort of the most desirable that that will bring about change. There are other elements that could that could lead to change. The most obvious one is the death of Khamenei, which, you know, is 84, so it's coming at some point. And, of course, one doesn't know what will follow the death, but it is possible that um, this rigid regime that he had built will soften in, in a number of ways. Um, and uh, you see the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, this militia that holds much of political, military, and economic power in Iran today, it's like you have a big role in succession crisis that is sure to follow Khamenei's death. And the idea is it's possible that they might uh, softening some of the rigidity regime at some point. Um, so these are some of the ways in which um, you know one could see changes in Iran. But I should say that you know no matter what scenario for democracy, dignity, freedom, and human rights in Iran will uh, will continue. Um, and, uh, you know, the different events from the top will will affect um, how these civil and political struggles will go on from the bottom. Um, but one also hopes that Iranians have finally seen that without a political, uh, without an organized political alternative, they cannot affect any change and will go on the uh, you know, embark on the tough task of building such an alternative. Hmm. Do you? So, do you? Do you think that uh, when Khomeini uh, dies, that the replacement is more likely to be softer, or or are we going to see things become even worse? Because, I mean, who who is more likely? Who is most likely to succeed? And what do their politics look like? More conservative, less conservative? What what do we um, do? We have a, a good insight into that right now. Uh, well, no, that's a million dollar question, and no one really knows. Um, what you need to remember is that the Islamic Republic has a very unusual system of governance. 
um, the this is because the position that Khamenei occupies, you know, he's not the president, he's not the, a monarch, he's something that doesn't exist anywhere in world history. His position is usually translated as supreme leader. I mean, that would make him a king to, let's say, Kim Jong-il in North Korea or Muammar Gaddafi in India. Um, but it's really an inaccurate, um, you know, it's an it's a in, inadequate, rather, uh, term in English. The real term in Persian um, is the guardian jurist. That's really the term. This system is based on a theory called the Latifari, or the guardianship of the jurist, um, which is the you know, which was devised by Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic in 1979. He was the first Aryan um, jurist, and Khomeini, the current leader, is the second. Um, and the closest, uh, the best way to understand it is uh, is to compare it, as many others have, um, to Plato's uh, philosopher king. So really, the idea is that there's this unbiased cleric religious leader who is, elected by this thing called Assembly of Experts, which is a bunch of old clerics, it's like the College of Cardinals, it's actually popularly elected, but of course only certain certain clerics can run, um, and you know, they are only allowed to run if they're, if they're pro-regime, basically. Um, so it's a very particular and peculiar institution, this guardianship of the jurists, um, and when Khamenei dies, um, it, it is, as I said, a million-dollar question. Has he appointed a successor already that we don't know? That's what many think. Something his son, Mushtaba Khamenei, is, is, what, is who will succeed him. Um, many of the most likely candidates have died. Um, the clerical class that took over Iran in 1979 has not really pr- reproduced itself. I, the next generation of clerics, those who grew up in the Islamic Republic, have not really came up with the strong figures. That's partly because Khamenei made sure that that would happen to to not have sort of rival uh, centers of power. Um, so it's hard to know who that person would be. But I think one likely scenario is the IRGC. To go back to the militia that I mentioned, is that the IRGC will put some sort of a figurehead there that it won't be a powerful figure necessarily. Um, and IRGC has many divisions in, in itself. Of course, it's it has. A, Thing, which is the one supporting all these terror groups in the region, including Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which just did the attacks on Saturday. Um, so in no way is it a you know, liberal organization or anything like that. But it does have many different factions and elements. And I think here there is a possibility of softening, as I said. Why do I say that? Is that because the current policies of the Iranian regime um, and the kind of rigidity that they have, the violence that they have, the chaos and instability that comes from them um, is, uh, you know, has a very little narrow social base, right? A very small number of people are sort of zealot enough to want to support such policies, whereas vast majority of Iranians don't like them for the basic reasons that they want to go on about their lives and, you know, make money and, and have normal lives like everybody else. And this includes even many people in the IRGC who... who like to be a rich, corrupt military like other countries, like Algeria, like Pakistan, um, as opposed to this revolutionary vanguard that they they currently are. Many who is holding the system together. So it is possible after his death that um, there would be a softening hmm. um, and there would be a more mundane um, dictatorship in Iran um, that would have more social peace, if you will, 
relations in the region. Already, of course, the Iranian regime has tried to better some of its ties with its neighbors to return, you know, like Saudi Arabia and others. Um, but it, it's not possible to do that, whether inside the country or outside, bring some sort of a more social peace and stability um, uh, until this um, revolutionary nature of the, the of the regime is shed, um, basically, and it turns on to a more mundane um, state. Huh. And and so it seems it seems like a large piece of this puzzle, of course, is going to be the uh, the cooperation or interference or um, you know just whatever role uh, foreign actors play. In particular, uh, such as you know you have Saudi Arabia, you have the United States, you have Israel, you have others. Uh, how do you how do you foresee the changing relationships with? Uh, with these nations and Iran's relationship with them and place in the world, uh, both the the sort of the future of Iran that you're the picture that you're painting, and as things seem as things seem now, given uh, recent events and what we know of them. Um, that's an excellent question. And yes, the external relations are really key to Iran. We have to remember why is it today, for example, that Iran is so economically depressed? I should have is an economically ruinous situation. Of course, we wouldn't be having this conversation this way if Iran was economically prosperous, right? Economically prosperous dictatorship, no matter how bad, is still much more tolerable, right? Um, you know, Brunei Darussalam is very repressive, as far as I understand, but it's economically prosperous and has good relations with its neighbors in Indonesia and Malaysia. So, um, you know, I haven't heard of any revolutionary movements in Brunei um, I'm, I'm, although I'm sure there are activists, you know, struggling for better human rights, right? Um, but it doesn't have this kind of crisis of, of legitimacy that that the Islamic Republic has. Um, so part of it is economic, uh, you know, this economic malaise. And where does it come from? But a lot of it is because of national isolation, the heavy regime of sanctions imposed on it by United States and other countries, um, and it's, a, it's it's international isolation. So this. You know, the foreign policy is very much linked. No, international isolation coming from, you know, a lot of us have been advocating against the sanctions. Um, a lot of us have been advocating for, um, a, you know, the, a, the nuclear deal of 2015 that, uh, that Iran made with a group of six powerful countries led by the United States. But at the end of the day, it's very clear that internationalization is due to the policies of Iran, the very unusual policies that no other country in the world has. It's pursuit of a a nuclear weapon um, against um, the will of the entire region, entire world. Um, its support for uh, various terror groups in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, um, in uh, Palestine, of course, in Lebanon, that have really disrupted lives of these countries and, and really destroyed Arab Arab leagues, if you will, internal life, um, the Arab world's internal life, really. And of course, his enmity, his, his uh, declared genocidal intentions toward Israel and his enmity with Israel and with the United States. These things have just led to being international pariah and the Iranian people who are paying for this price. And I'll tell you this, it's just a matter of fact. The Iranian people don't want to pay uh, <laughs> this price. In fact, most people in the world would never want to pay that price, right? Um, they, it's very rare that people would say, yes, it's okay, we'll leave poor and under terrible conditions and under threat of war because we want to follow this cause, um, no matter what the cause is. It's just, it's just not how 
you know, humans work. Um, certainly in the case of Iran, um, you do not have a society that is really behind this greater cause of Tehran. So, um, so that is something that could change. I mean, I talk about softening of, of the rigidity of the regime, that's precisely what I mean. I mean, it is very possible that the next iterations of the IRGC post Khamenei and leadership would just start to soften these things. They like, don't need to immediately, but it can stop to in Islamic Jihad and try to reconcile with the United States um, over the demands from the United States. Modest, really, they're not crazy things. They're about Iran's nuclear program, its missile program, and its support for these terror groups in the region. And you can try to have better relations in the region, including Saudi Arabia. Um, um, so, you know, that would really, that would lift the international isolation. It would mean for better economy for the country. Hmm. Um, it would, and, and, you know, it would, if it goes hand in hand with the lessening of social repression, it can lead to a period of honeymoon at least. So to be clear, I'm envisioning a situation, and I've written about this, in that I'm envisioning a situation in which things are not less social repression and less international isolation, which will hopefully mean more economic success, less brain drains, um, more uh, incoming of investment. Um, and you know, this should this should mean that the whatever the, the regime the, there is then will have at least some period of honeymoon with its people. I'm sure people will still fight for democracy, it will still fight for um, freedom of speech, but um, even, even before uh, reaching those things, um, this regime can at least have a period of social peace and, and a honeymoon with its people. So essentially uh, an, an alleviation of sanctions through something like the Joint Comprehension Plan of Action or some other version of an Iran deal uh, is is that what you have in mind? Yes, I would say much more broadly. I think JCPOA gave us a, you know, JCPOA um, was rather limited, right? Because it it really just, you know, it did not talk about reestablishing diplomatic ties in the states or or at the time, uh, you know, extending. It, it didn't touch, for example, Iran's support for militias in the region. So I would say yes, an extended uh, JCPOA could really okay. seriously help and international isolation. I should say that even JCPOA itself, um, this is an important thing because it's often forgotten. You know, JCPOA was signed in, in June 2015. Um, uh, Donald Trump was, of course, elected in November 2016. Implementation of JCPOA started in January 2016. And so, and by election of Trump in November, it effectively, even though Trump only left the pact in 2018, but the implementation phase had uh, sorry, but the election of Trump in November 2016 had already sort of had the writing on the wall for the deal, and it was a terrible defeat for the Iranian uh, centrists, if you will, um, uh, and those who had supported it. And, uh, you know, this is sort of an alternate history. We never know what would have happened had Donald Trump had not been elected if it was the Clinton administration. Um, but what we do know is that from January 2016 to the summer and November, Iran was a very different place. It was a place full of optimism. Um, you know, a lot of you know, the, the repressive Islamic Republic was still in place. There's still tons of political prisoners, um, same people in power. However, there was a ton of optimism that things could change, that Iranian society and economy could open up, um, and and better days will be to come. So, unfortunately, what killed that optimism at that point was uh, the election of Trump and the, uh, um, the kind of aggressive posture that he 
started having in regards to the Iranian regime, um, and in, more importantly, in regards to the JCPOA, which, which again, the Iran was abiding by. You know, right? Iran was abiding by this deal um, for a very long time, and unfortunately, um, you know, by the time Biden was elected, that window of opportunity had had closed down, and important political changes had happened in Iran. Um, it had been much closer. Iran was now led again, not by the centuries pro-best faction of the regime, but by its hardliner pro-Khamenei faction since 2021. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, um, that, but the JCPOA is really a beginning of a window of, of what, you know, what, how things in Iran could be more optimistic um, if there is more opening. Um, on the international front, one of my one of my readings of of uh, the negative impacts of the United States, the Trump's decision to leave the Iran deal, there's usually the conversation is centered around this opens up the possibility for Iran to just start making nukes, and now we don't have any way to hold their feet to the fire. Of course, that's a concern, but something that doesn't get talked about often enough. I'm curious to to hear if you think this is a fair analysis, but that really a very harmful uh, result was the displacement in Iran of the of those who had backed the deal as a way of saying, we really can work with America, we really can make progress. And by displacing those voices, now you've sort of like reinforced the worst voices in the room, the most conservative voices who were always saying, we shouldn't even try to work with the, the Western community. We should just be completely going down this path of like absolute dictatorial, you know, weapon seeking. I mean, it, it, Trump kind of handed those people a massive victory, yeah, I feel. I think that's, that, I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. Um, you know, there is a faction of the Iranian regime, right? And this goes, you know, this is a really deep matter, you know. Um, I know this place well because a lot of you know people sometimes they sort of they make sort of easy analysis usually for a short temporary in the United States, right? I'm really making a bit deeper analysis based on knowing the history of this Club work. It had a faction represented by President Rouhani and Prime Minister Javad Zarif, a faction that held the presidency from um, 2013 um, to 2021. In this in these eight years, um, this faction is a fundamentally pro. Now, what do I mean by pro Western? I do not mean that it's liberal democratic, which is not right. It's not democratic. It doesn't have a democratic bone in its body, if you will. Really, it's not liberal. It's not pro. Uh, uh, you know, democracy. However, it is when it comes to the international orientation of Iran. It's technocratic and capitalist, basically. In fact, the leftists usually call them neoliberals in Iran, and that's 100% correct, uh, by which I mean that they're neoliberal capitalists. So they want Iran to be a normal capitalist country that makes money. I mean, I usually compare Rouhani to Deng Xiaoping in China, a kind of a leader who was technocratic, um, you know, who famously said it doesn't matter whether the mouse is, whether the cat is um, black or white, but it matters is whether it can catch a mice. Uh, right, so we, you know, basically doesn't care about ideological verbiage. What really matters is economic performance, which is very much what the success of China uh, post nineteen seventy and post nineteen seventy six, um, or I guess post nineteen seventy eight, we should say, um, really was based on that. Um, and this faction had got a gr- had got a grand victory in twenty fifteen by getting the JCPOA. Right, it had now said, and we have to remember the JCPOA came with. 
following long um, dozens of hours of diplomatic engagement between Iran and the United States, direct diplomatic engagement, Secretary Kerry and Zarif spent long hours together. Secretary Kerry probably didn't spend this much time with any of his counterparts in the world. Um, so it was really a shattering of the anti-Americanism of the Iranian regime. The image was gone. America became a partner or a diplomatic, uh, you know, diplomatic partner from from this great Satan that the regime and Khamenei have always tried to portray. So, and Rouhani had great ca- political capital. That's why many of us voted for him in 2017, you know, including myself. Um, and, uh, you know, this was all lost by Trump's tanking of the deal. Now, you know, it is possible, entirely possible, that had Trump not been elected, Khamenei would have tanked the deal in other ways, right? So I don't do, you know, as a historian, I don't do counterfactual history, right? But, so this is not counterfactual history, but, but just looking at what happened was that, as you suggested yourself, when Trump left the deal, um, closed down the economy, then Rouhani had nothing to show, right? He, he's, he was politically weakened. He became the most hated president, if you will, um, in many ways, because Iranians were impatient with him, they didn't support him anymore, and he also didn't stand up to the IRGC, didn't stand up to comedy, as many of us had hoped he might. Um, but partially the reason he was much harder for me to do that is that he was politically weakened because without the JCPOA, um, you know, what was Iran supposed to do? Um, hmm. You know, so it, it really, it was a disastrous decision for Iran. And, and we should, what makes it sadder, um, you know, if Donald Trump had, let's say, left the deal and adopted the policy of regime change, we would say, okay, that, you know, that he had this policy and you know, it's something he saw. But he left the deal, uh, you know, this is a striking thing. We never know why. Um, by, by which I mean, it's not like he stood um, for a different deal. He had a very critique or clear critique of the deal, right? Um, this is one of the sort of revolting hypocrisies of American politics. Um, those who were very loudly opposed to the deal, I mean, what did they have to say for it? You know, everybody in the world supported that deal. Like, there were some critiques of it, but everyone in the world supported that deal, including establishment in Israel. Yes, Netanyahu didn't support the deal, right? Um, but the security establishment in Israel understood that a deal that keeps the Iranian nuclear program, um, you know, under control is better than one that doesn't. Um, and Trump, what did Trump stand for? He didn't even stand for regime change. He basically said he wanted negotiations with Iran um, without preconditions, with the existing leadership of Iran. He said time and time again that he has no problem with the existing leadership in Iran. You know, he got rid of John Bolton, his national security advisor, who was who was against the Iranian regime and, and stood for a regime change policy. Um, and uh, it appeared at the end that he just didn't like the fact that Obama had this deal with his name and he, Trump wanted to um, have a deal under his own name, which of course it didn't happen because he didn't have the kind of posture that could get a deal from the Islamic Republic. So it was certainly a, a disastrous decision and one that really changed the course of Iranian history forever. I have to agree. Yeah, I think that um, the Iran deal is not the only thing that was very good that Trump basically saw as a sandcastle of Obama that he just wanted to stomp on. And that's it. There's there's really people, I think, struggle to come up with more intelligent reasons because there just has to be a better reason than just I I can't believe you made that. Bam, 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 and and unfortunately, yeah. 
I think that's what it is. I really think it comes down to this had Obama's name on it and Trump was going to uh, dismantle as much of, of Obama's legacy as he could. And it didn't matter whether some of the things he was stomping into the ground were going to save millions of lives, potentially. Um, That's right. The Iran deal, I, I have always viewed it as actually one of the greatest diplomatic achievements in U.S. history for as short as, short as it existed. Um, but, I That's mean, right. It was a true achievement. And those of us, you know, I was a journalist. I covered the, um, the event, um, you know, and the event, you know, took two years, right? Um, so, you know, I spent many nights in Lausanne, in Vienna, um, uh, in Geneva um, to, you know, as the deal was happening and a lot of us journalists and analysts from the United States and Iran were meeting and, you know, uh, people like me, Iranians in the diaspora meeting those from inside Iran is really a, in indescribable moment of unity in many ways. And of course, there was Russia and China in the room. There was, yeah, there was, there were the Europeans. Um, and they, they kind of, even though everyone didn't like each other, of course, for many reasons, um, they still we all, weirdly enough, had a shared goal, which was the reaching of this deal. Um, and, and we achieved it at the end, right? Mm. Um, and people in Iran celebrated. Um, they came out to the streets in their high numbers and celebrated. As I said, everywhere in the world, if you remember the UNGA, United Nations General Assembly, in September 2015, you know, I was there covering it in New York. Um, Netanyahu was the only one who spoke against the deal. I mean, the high debate. Every day, all the leaders of JC, GCC countries um, supported it, right? Um, all the Western leaders supported it. Um, there were few, few things in the world, if you will, that, that there was such consensus on. But unfortunately, um, President Trump made a made this decision to leave that uh, mm. that was really, um, you know, disastrous. Um, so in terms of... Uh turns in the road ahead there's Khomeini passing away okay and that's coming soon as you said noted his age uh are there any others ahead uh, events or things where we should look forward to possible inflection points in the history of Iran um well you know it's interesting it's the Middle East right we, it's very hard to uh, predict things and there are things always coming out of the shadows um, so um, the death of Khamenei, I think one, it's nature, right? So it will happen at some point. Although I have to say it could also happen a very long time from now. His father, I believe, lived to his 90s. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's possible that we might be waiting a long time. Um, but um, what are some of the other things? Well, um, the developments on the Israeli-Palestinian front are, I think, very important. Mm. If you start, and as you know, now we are in the middle of, of this of this terrible war, which I hope ends soon, um, there is a, a terrible conflict. You know, it is possible that it will uh, reach to a broader conflagration and draw Iran in. I personally hope that doesn't happen, of course, but it's a possibility nevertheless. But not uh, better that uh, whatever happens to that broader conflagration, um, the developments on that front develop. A possible Israeli-Saudi deal, for example, that was on, you know, really in the cards before these current events and might have still be in, in the cards, that can be quite important, that can change the face of the region a little bit. Um, uh, and, you know, that will have definitely some effect uh, on Iran, um, as will a possible end to Palestinian statelessness and reaching of, of Palestinians to sovereignty independence would really um, undermine um, the resistance that Iran supports in the region. Um, 
other developments inside Iran other than you know until Khamenei is dead I can't see a um, uh, sort of a fundamental change in the orientation of the regime but of course presidential elections happen every four years in Iran still, and there are sometimes moments of surprise in 2021 it was the first election in decades that truly was um, it was truly a um, uncompetitive elections right so the results were known beforehand but not necessarily be always that so even if Khamenei is alive it's possible that different conservative even uh, figures inside the regime can rise up politically um, and challenge things so Iran hmm. you know um, Iran is usually not the Islamic Republic um, if you compare it to history of other countries you know it has lived 44 years it's never been a boring time right um, there's a lot of back and forth there's a lot of uh, developments that you couldn't predict before um, and why the I want to be clear about something right the the conservative camp in the in the Iranian politics, right? And conservative is not a good translation of it. It's really um, principalist is the real term, like people who are principled. That's like the term they use for themselves. But this basically means uh, the right-wingers or the pro-regime factions. Okay. They have far from a homogenous um, sort of united rank. There are tons of differences in them. And of course, between them and different centrists, um, different, uh, different factions of the regime and their internal dealings um, and the way they rely on different sections of the population um, can also lead to changes. For example, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, if you're the former of Iran in 2005, I mean, he was obviously a pro-regime leader. He had been a mayor of Tehran. He was an unknown figure. But in, in, in office, in his populism, if you will, really led to a lot of surprising um, developments, um, including his confrontation with Khamenei in his own way. Um, even before, you know, 2009, when you had that massacre. So, um, yeah, I would say in un, unexpected consequence, unexpected events in internal Iranian politics could still lead, um, could still lead to big changes in the country. Mm. And this is something that you talk about <clears throat> in your book, but um, uh, do you think that the ongoing protests that we're seeing now uh, that, that began with uh, Masha Amini's uh, murder... Is this the kind of thing that we've seen before that is going to pass away or be put down? Or is this something that is quite different? Is, has, is this an inflection point in Iran's history that we're witnessing right now? I think it's an inflection point so, so far as um, it's the most significant challenge to the Iranian regime and really shows um, deep, um, you know, it shows a lot of people openly calling for a change to the regime. I mean, getting rid of this Islamic Republic the way it exists now. This is very important. And, and you know, uh, not only vast numbers of Iranian people, you know, how many polling, but I'm pretty sure it's a majority, um, but also important political figures. For example, Mir Hossein Musaib, former prime minister, right? Um, openly calls for that. Nagis Mohammadi, of course, this Nobel Prize winner. You have to remember, Nagis Mohammadi, like myself, voted for President Rouhani in 2017. The fact that someone like her would say, no, actually, we need to get rid of the whole regime, the fact that someone like you know, say Musavi, a former prime minister of eight years, um, a former presidential candidate in 2000, um, would say this. You know, this is very significant. So it's, and this all happened really in this, throughout this woman life freedom movement. So I think it was a definitely important moment in Iran history that will be, no matter what the future is, will be always looked uh, back at. Um, uh, but in terms of whether, you know, you know, whether it can bring about change, 
the problem of lack of a political alternative continues to be a problem and it continues to evade Iranians. There can be no political change without political organization. There can be no change of a regime without a political alternative. That continues to be the problem. So yes, the process, any process can always be crashed, um, uh, crushed so far as, so long as you don't have the alternative. And, and these processes have been crushed for now, but they might um, appear any time again. And I think they will, actually. I think they will. Huh. Um, you know, although it's very difficult now, for example, recently there was another Iranian girl, Armita Garavand, who was almost became another master. Clearly, um, she, uh, the hijab forces, hijab moral police attacked her. She was in the coma. Uh, she is in the coma, as we speak, I believe. Um, we don't know her condition. Um, but of course, uh, you know, you would, if, if you're Iranian also right now, you ask yourself, why would I come out now? Why would I come out for what? Um, you know, how how would me coming out lead to what's the strategy, right? How would it lead to change the regime? Um, so, I mean, that that's what perhaps is not as much of an appetite for it to happen. But this could also lead itself to a, a strengthening of, uh, uh, you know, potential opposition alternatives. Mm. I should say that there were attempts to form a, a political opposition alternative abroad and they failed miserably. I mean, I've, I've written about this, right? Um, basically, a group was formed, it collapsed under a month, and, and there was a lot of differences and different sides attacking each other, those who wanted to return to monarchy, those who were Republicans, those who favored more autonomy for various ethnic groups in Iran, and unfortunately, they sort of collapsed, it often happens in opposition politics. Um, but I think now, perhaps, now that we fail in that moment of truth, if we can be clear about that failure, um, it is possible that all of that hopelessness will come hope and that we'll be able to um, put together a workable alternative. But before that, I think it certainly hampers, um, hmm. hampers positivity of movement. It could also be that now that those abroad have uh, seriously failed, some more efforts will uh, happen from inside Iran that you know, we will find our Lechwa lesson. Um, we will find our Nelson Mandela hmm. um, and we'll be able to uh, bring down this regime. I, I, I feel as if what we might be seeing is something that we perhaps saw at the beginning of February or maybe the early part of 2022 in Ukraine where everyone was so uh, shocked, I think, by the just the, the spine of the Ukrainian people and their... Something that I think maybe not everyone who hadn't been watching carefully knew, and and they just have been blown away by the the spirit of the Ukrainian people. And I think uh, we're seeing some, the same thing in Iran. We're seeing this 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 will to freedom that is so powerful among the people, um, and inspiring. Uh, as a final question, you know, the subtitle of your book, "What Iranians Want: Women, Life, and Freedom." Uh, could you just talk briefly about the role the, that in the ongoing pro- protest we see how central uh, women are in this fight, and um, why why is it that women are so such a powerful force in this Ar- Iranian revolutionary movement? And um, if you yeah, if you could just talk about that, please. You know that that's a very good question, and, and you know it has a it, you know it. Like to answer with basically sort of sociologically, right? It's not because often it's sort of an emotional thing. You know, women are great, women rule, you know, girls run the world, right? Um, but really, there's a sociological answer to it. And the answer is that the Iranian women are 
more educated than their male counterparts. They are very sort of socially advanced, if you will, um, by which I mean they have a very high employment rate. They have a, a very high education rate, as I mentioned. They have, you know, lived under. Um, so, so this, this this is their sort of social conditions. And then when you come to their legal status, it's uh, you know like you know some of the worst in the world, right? So you have women whose social degree of sort of social involvement um, and education is like that of um, you know any sort of developed country. Um, and then you have a legal situation, a legal repression that they suffer on, that is worse than anywhere in the world, frankly, as I said. You know, only Afghanistan under uh, Taliban can, can rival that. Iranian women cannot travel without the permission of their husband. They have to wear a, a veil everywhere they go. No other country in the world, by the way, imposes that. They cannot go to uh, stadiums. Um, and you know, I used to mention some of the bizarre, um, some of the bizarre restrictions, um, just to sort of portray the bizarreness. For example, you know, Iranian women are not allowed to smoke uh, hookah when they go to cafes. Hmm. Uh, you know, they they're not allowed to ride a bike. They're not allowed to ride a motorbike. Um, you know, so so there's this disparity that makes for you know makes for a political subject to the people, right? The fact that you have people, you know, like my mother, like my aunts like my sister, like it's not people that we don't know, right? We're all, um, as I said, educated people who have jobs, who want to enjoy uh, uh, fruits of a um, sort of a civic life, like like anybody would. Um, but they're so restricted, right? This sort of humiliation, right? And I remember, you know, my mom is a sort of a filmmaker. And I remember, you know, she's someone for herself. And I have to remember always how humiliating it was that you know, she wants to travel she cannot get a, ro- a room in a hotel uh, without even you know with, even with permission she cannot and when she wants to get a passport she has to get a permission from my father right so it's it's kind of it's, it's this kind of things that really makes the political subject to that as I said and it really it leads to to rage to um, and to um, people really coming out um, to protest these conditions. And if you look at young women who were really important, mm-hmm. like very young women, I'm talking about teenagers, who were really at the, you know, some of the most active uh, participants in the movement in its early days, you know, they kind of look to a life like this, right? Um, they, they look down and they see, you know, is this the kind of life I want to have? Um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, what, what many do, of course, is leave the country um, increasingly. Um, and for those who do, to do remain, um, you know, they fight, um, and they, uh, you know, that's what makes them these inspiring actors that they've long been, and then that's what gives them the leading role that they had in this current movement. Hmm. Hmm. And that and that is what uh, Nargis Mohammadi won the Nobel Peace Prize for was for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran and staying in exactly yeah yeah exactly and she you know she gets her energy and her you know a good activist a good political leader really you know connects with her mm. constituency and has an organic relationship with them and i think that's true with her as well she gets her encouragement i mean as i say in the book and i and she says herself in the book um uh, you know from from her constituency from her people which are first yeah. and foremost i believe girls and women of Iran. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think now is a great time for anyone who wants to understand the situation, the ongoing protests, 
to pick up the book, uh, What Iranians That's Want. Right. It's uh, it, it, it hits on all and these. Her book, you know, and her book, um, as I said, um, you should also a great book. Oh, uh, White torture. Yeah. oh, I'm sorry. What is her book? I, I, I mentioned it earlier. White torture. Oh, right. Yes, right. Of course. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's a good pair. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, well, thank, uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. I've uh, learned a lot about this, and um, I have. Of course. Thank I have, you so much for having me. Yeah, I have and, hope uh, yeah, for the so future. Send it to me when it's over, and I'll be, you know, I'd love to share it. Uh, oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, have a beautiful week. Thank you. You too. Have a beautiful week. Thank you for talking to me. Take take care.